You're going to have to cut a bunch of my stuff because I rambled. That's fine. I'm used to it. My name is Nathan Paletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. All right, Will, what are we talking about on the Design Games Podcast this time? Nathan, we've got great questions and topics coming in online from listeners and uh, visitors to the website and the Google Plus community, and we're going to tackle a terrific one today. Recently on the Design Games Google Plus community, I asked our wonderful community members what conceptual topics we may have elided thus far as we're starting to move a little down the design trajectory and into things that are more about playtesting, bringing it together, iteration, and and bringing the design from concepts to like some kind of shareable thing. You know, we have our own blinders and our own list of topics and everything, so we want to make sure we're not missing anything. We got a bunch of great responses and we're going to be addressing some of them over the next couple of weeks, but this one really jumped out at, at us. Max Wallander, apologies if I mispronounced that, sent us this. You would like us to address this idea of purpose, how purpose influences design. You often talk about standard RPGs. As a teacher, I always have to think about who I have in the classroom. Is the game a one-shot, played in one sitting or, or evening, or is the purpose a long campaign? Is the purpose to introduce new players, tweens, or adults? Is the purpose to increase diversity, for example, not only white educated males, or address a certain political issue? How your purpose will affect your design would be interesting to listen to. Well, we think it will be very interesting to talk about because I think our tendency is to return to these touch points that mm-hmm. we're like, these are common things, so everyone knows what we're talking about. But I think that also means that it's worth us taking an episode to be like, and let's talk about having agendas that are not also doing a game that's, that's kind of like D&D or kind of like Apocalypse World. Right, right. The interesting part of the question to me is like, what's your small a agenda? Mm-hmm coming to the game like how how is your game expressing a certain field of inquiry right and that can be subject matter you know this is a this game is about like queer relationships yeah. right or it can be in the landscape of other games like here's a sword and sorcery adventure game that sings in a single session as opposed to yeah all these other sword and sorcery adventure games which are great and are optimized for campaign play those are two different directions that are each coming from this like uh when you, when you sit down to make a game like what's your goal with the transmission of the idea right, right? well and, and that's related uh similarly to vision yeah right i mean that's a part of the agenda is part of one's vision often mm-hmm. or, i mean by the at what stage it becomes part of the vision i think we would be remiss to skip the areas where a game can be agnostic to this stuff in a healthy way right the some of the examples for example in the question which i think are all great examples mm-hmm. are of a need at the table which is not necessarily required for the game to primarily address as long as it leaves it open for the user to primarily address in play right so like when you play a one shot of something that isn't explicitly for one shots mm-hmm. or when you turn into a campaign something that is explicitly for one shots uh, where you make something educational at the adventure level or at the single play level at the character mm-hmm. level even though the game is agnostic to whatever so for example if you have a game that is that is just completely like open to all notions of gender identity and its setting has no politics about it at all, whether it's archetypally 20th century Earth-based American gender stereotypes or whatever is the norm so that you can comment on it. Right. And the game just isn't getting in the way of that, where you can bring in those agendas and goals right. and things. Well, yeah. so that can come at it or right. at a number of different levels. Right. Like if your agenda as the designer coming to this project is like, I want people playing this game to subvert 
traditional 20th century gender roles. Right. Right. Then that puts you in a place on the design level to design mechanisms that are going to create both the opportunity and the ability or, or not, as, not even create demand that players mm-hmm. engage with those themes. If that's your inspiration and that's your goal, then that is obviously going to very strongly, it will align your design towards making sure that happens. If your goal with the game is here's a platform to subvert genre tropes, right? And maybe right. those are gender tropes. Maybe those are who's the hero, who's the villain. Yeah. Maybe they're whatever. But like, here's a superhero game where the goal of the game is is to take whatever you're interested in and then like create subversion in play. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a different design than the superhero game that is about punching pink robbers until the diamonds come out <laughs> right. or whatever. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or, or that is about like investigating like superhero sexuality because that's something that mm-hmm. like you're interested in that you don't see and you want to be out in the world versus like, here's my superhero game and my, I'm most interested in superhero fights. So the design is all about the fighting and then any game at the table can can turn towards investigations or or subversions or whatever based mm-hmm. on the player interest. But the question on the design level is more like, are you creating an opportunity for people to do that? Or are you demanding that people engage with right. your agenda? Right. The difference between inclusion and intention. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's probably a better word for intention because that has all kinds of connotations. But what I mean is if it's a game that models a bunch of stuff in this in the world, including things like gender politics and sexual relationships or asexual relationships or violence or whatever, whatever we choose to engage with at the table interacts with that process. So for example, if, if a game has on the character sheet the kind of like five recognized gender expressions or performative genders of that setting, sure. and the one you can circle any of those, that's engaging with the notion on one level, but it may not have a mechanism about it per se. It may just present it that way. Right. Versus a game that if it has a mechanism in which there's literally when gender A and gender E interact, these systems engage. Mm. One of them is inclusive and one of them is intentional. Like one of them is about that and one of them mm. is just making it possible to include and address it and understand where it is in relation to everything else. You know what I mean? Yeah, a little bit. For me, I think about it in terms of like a soft kind of push or a hard push mm-hmm. like from the design side or you could think about it as, you know, opening a door versus having to step through one of a set of doors. Pick your metaphor, but kind of hey, this is part of the game. It's over here. It's clearly indicated. It is up to you whether you step through that door and engage with it. That's kind of a softer right. way right. to present your your material than pick a gender. They do all these things in these combinations and in the course of play, you will end up experiencing these different combinations. Right. That's a harder uh, a harder design movement. To start the process of bringing some of the, I'm with you, but mm-hmm. to bring some of the process of this metaphor down into action. Yes. Let's just say that this game is all about exploring a space, and that space is like a museum or something, right? Okay, mm-hmm. so that we can kind of get a vague fictional environment out of it. It's a building. If you include in it a room that is about these things, or I have a door to gender performance ideas in this building, mm-hmm. that's one thing. If the adventure or the gameplay or the victory conditions or the point economy or whatever it is draw players into that room where things happen, Mm-hmm. And maybe they can go to that room. There's you know ten rooms. It's a museum. It's a big building, and they can go through these rooms in any order. To me, this is why inclusion is the soft move. Inclusion puts it present in the space, mm-hmm. but then intention is where it says, and you, if you come to this museum and you don't go to all ten rooms, you've kind of not played the full game. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
the difference between, I think, having a door and designing so that players move through or interact with that door in a really right. meaningful way, mm-hmm. as opposed to just saying, well, it's over there. So if you feel like if you're already want to engage with this idea, right. there it is. But it's like to play yeah. the game, you have to open this door and walk right. into the room. Right. Right. That's yeah. a- you have to collect all 10 gems and there's right. a gem in each room or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I keep using the word inherit, but to not just take as granted that there must be elves in this game because I said the word fantasy or whatever. And that includes then, though, to almost everything, which is the ideas of, is my noir game literally in a world that is grayscale? Yeah. That Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Like, I was picturing it being like a black and white movie. It only now occurred to me that maybe it really is, you know, or whatever. But that these kind of assumptions that we make... Mm the design process is not just a great place to question our own assumptions because our, the inside of our own head is some degree of safe space for us to think about this stuff. Mm-hmm. But part of it is also creating an, an environment in which play can question assumptions in ways that are safer than, well, in the same way, for example, if you have a game that's about exploring volcanic caves, I'm not going to endorse that children should go wandering around lava. Right. But I mean, the, the whole nature of play is in part that we can interact with stuff in a way that the stakes are different than, for example, skydiving for real we have to consider is that the stakes include, am I going to learn about a thing that will naturally come with mistakes that I'm going to make while learning about it in a way that I can make those mistakes not be static or harmful to somebody else? Right. Play is often synonymous with fun. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big believer that every game needs to contain a fun, but it doesn't necessarily need to be about that. Because if it doesn't contain a fun, people are not going to stick with it long enough to find out what the game is about. Mm-hmm. But fun can be, a, is first of all, a super broad notion, and we're not going to define it anyway, so I'm yeah. not going to bother. But the nature of play is riffing on and exploring and finding out. I mean, I'm a big believer, obviously, in Huizinga's Magic Circle and the idea that inside the game, there are different rules that apply. And that's part of the benefit of saying, like, for example, it's just the fact that I can, inside the Magic Circle, I can be a dragon. Yeah. I can't be a dragon at work. Right. To use this as an opportunity to reflect on on this podcast and our yeah. conversations, a lot of our conversation does tend towards things that we think of as generally universal in scare quotes or generally that we think our audience is going to kind of know what we're talking about. So it's a little shorthandy. So like yeah. talking about D&D, talking about Apocalypse World, a lot of the time talking about fancy adventures, our, our uh, Insomniac fighter pilot game that we've been steadily creating over the course of the podcast. And the effect on our conversation is that we tend to stick to a pretty median kind of level of content and kind of gameplay, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't talk about, like, crazy experimental genre-bending games too much other than to mention that they exist or that they're right. valid to design, which they are. Because the trade-off that we're making in the podcast is then we feel like we're, we're going to have conversations that are of more utility to more people yeah. if we kind of stick to the the middle of the Venn diagram of all possible game backgrounds of people listening right right? yeah for both historical reasons like because D&D created the genre so that's makes sense for us to reference a lot right it it happens to be that D&D is both that and still visible right but if D&D had gone the way of some old card game like Mm-hmm. Casino, mm-hmm. even though it was core, I wouldn't bring it up oh, sure. so often. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, no, but, I, but I'm I, with you. I'm with you. Yeah, games that are both antecedents and still currently relevant, you know, and market leaders in the category, and you know, all these things mean it's like, oh yeah, so we can name check D and D a lot, right? But that does do a disservice, as this points out. Yeah, that we do not talk a whole lot about questioning those assumptions about games that are not about killing things and taking their stuff that are not about adventure, that are not about fighting. 
you know, because those are easy examples. And that's one reason why, like, lots of examples of play are examples of a sword fight, fantasy, fighting, you know, like these yeah. things that are relatively easy for us in our cultural context to just kind of talk about and kind of assume that people are able to fill in the context without us having to spend a bunch of words on it. I mean, to me, it's it's twofold between, I'll do it in this order. One is that I tend to assume that people, when they're listening to the, to the show, are doing something else at the same time. Sure. They're driving or riding on the bus, whatever. And so I, and I think you and I have talked about this before, but it's the idea that they may not be able to go and Google a thing at the moment that we talk about it. Right. <laughs> but that also leads to this thing where, like you say, we're talking about the things that we think of as being highly visible, monoliths that are on, that can be seen from further away. Uh, and you used exactly what I was going to use, which is, is a disservice to the fact that one of the strengths of not just games, but of RPGs in particular and imagination games and social fictions and social games of all these sorts is that they offer a much lower cost to address subject matter that could otherwise be difficult to address. Right. We've maybe been shortchanging the ability to say games can be, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to say daring, but what I mean is that a game can tackle anything regardless of what the market currently suggests will be the best return on your investment. Right. Right. Like to a certain extent, if you're talking about a, a 10 page finite role playing game that is really powerful. Mm hmm the market isn't necessarily the motivator for that thing anyway, right. right? Making the thing is the primary motivator for a lot of the great and standout. And, and when I say daring, I guess I'll, what I mean are games that, that had the gumption to disregard the market or to say, I just don't have sword fighting rules in this game, which mm -hmm. is sometimes a bold statement, which is in itself commentary. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm with you. But yeah, a lot of it gets back to your inspiration and the fact that your inspiration can be content agnostic. Your inspiration can be, I've played all these games where fighting things is the primary way of interacting with them. Mm -hmm. I want a game that just doesn't revolve around the use of violence. Right. I think usually it benefits to have some kind of fictional or content that matches that to at least start off. Because I know like that's something that I've been thinking about a lot over the last year or so, the role of violence in games and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. one of the big hurdles to me in developing that past the concept, filling out my vision so that I can really get working on it, is that I haven't really found a good pairing of fictional content that isn't already kind of coded with some other kind of interactive, like a drama or, you know, uh, the soap opera or, I don't know, relationship-based kind of stuff. You know, how do, how do you make a game that's about adventure that's not about fighting in the game space? There are ways to do it. There are games that exist that do it. But, you know, my in into it is like figuring out what's the, the content that will support that mm -hmm. inspiration for me that resonates with me that I want to explore. A lot of us, just from our history as players and then how that feeds our designs means that a lot of our muscle memory is in, if not even necessarily violent, but just in combative or conflicted mm -hmm. design means that we're kind of having to learn a new muscle group. So it's it's doing a lot of jobs at once. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a taller order. Mm -hmm. It's respectable to do a hard job well or sometimes just, you know, good enough, but it's also respectable to find a hard job and go, I'm not ready for this yet. Yeah. I have an article coming out on Medium early April about how I would do an MMO without violence. Because mm -hmm. I was thinking about the same subject. And this one is actually essentially a, a citywide MMO about hide and seek mm. that is kind of like the sequences in the Bourne movies where the idea is that one player controls the surveillance in the city and the other player wants to not get, wants to escape the city. Mm -hmm. And if anybody has to use violence in any, in either direction, they sure, lose. Sure, yeah. If you have to harm the runner, you failed. 
if the runner has to hurt somebody to get away, they get caught. Right. Because they've done something too big for just surveillance to catch them or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's not a game I could make. It's a cool, interactive, I think, digital game. But it's not a thing that I'm going to be able to produce myself not being a programmer of that level. But an idea, for example, that that I've been stewing on that I think somebody could make really well that I don't think I'm the person to make, but is either archaeology or provenance in general as far as like repatriation. The idea Mm -hmm. of finding treasures in which you're not trying to take them from cultists and mobsters and stuff. You're going to dig sites and you're mm-hmm. trying to reconstruct both the narrative of the dig of the site that you're digging in and one of the ways that you do that is you find treasures that prove or disprove your theories on this on the dig site yeah and so you find physical objects which might be randomly generated that could come off a table or something and there's a, i think a space in the rpg space or something like that what happens when there's multiple cultures or institutions that have claims on a thing like how do you navigate yeah you know and, th- and that could turn into dramatic scenes yeah right conversations and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff too but that whole space, it has treasures which people love. And I've had some obvious and proven entryways, mm-hmm. but has also the ability to strip the violence out of it. Yeah. I think that is an example of something that is simultaneously fun to design and expandable and has a world, but is also educational. Because mm-hmm. it could literally be about art history. It could be completely set on Earth if you wanted to. It could be yeah. set in a fantasy kingdom if you wanted it to. Um, but it can also be about how patriation and repatriation works, about how art gets moved around. And the, the thing is, is that imagine that this game was made and was terrific and, and was beautiful and popular. Mm-hmm. Whether I came at it from somebody who has a bunch of cool art that I wanted to put to use, or I come at it from somebody who loves art history and wants to make a game about it, or I come from, come from a position that wants to talk about repatriation and theft of treasure and history and lies, whatever, they might all come together in the same game. And even though I entered through one of those three doors, when I can see from inside the room that those other two doors exist, I have the ability to not just unlock, but draw people in through those doors. So I I think there's a lot of game design good that can be done through inclusion and intentionality that that is arrived at in that first diamond shape of design, that Mm -hmm. first information gathering that you arrive at almost accidentally. Yeah. By not chasing something like a market factor or th- that this game needs orcs or that whatever it is, accepting the space that you're in and accepting that you're going to drop some stuff that might be classic sellers or something. You're going to say, well, there's no elves in this game. Mm-hmm. But by including these aspects that are important to you, you might end up at a game that is socially relevant, powerfully thoughtful, provocative in, in mm-hmm. meaningful ways that you set out to make as a sword fighting game. <laughs> right. I think that any, pretty much any game that makes it all the way through a thoughtful design process ends up being about more than it's about. Mm-hmm. Sometimes without the designer's knowledge, it's more of an emergent factor. So in that way, having the strong inspiration and kind of keeping to that, because it's a social experience and because you're going to be taking in all these other factors and then winnowing them out and then making principled decisions and reflecting on your experience and reflecting on your inspiration. If you see it out long enough until it's a thing that you're like, okay, this is all I'm going to do with this. It's done. It will be about more than just the initial agenda that you might have for it. Because I think there's a fear uh, I know that I have where it's like if I have a very, whether it's controversial or niche or whatever idea that I want to explore, that it's going to be one note. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. That like my final thing, if I make the repatriation artifact game that you're going to play for two hours and repatriate all the artifacts and that's the end of the game and everyone goes, hmm. Right. <laughs> right. And I think the value of going through the iterative d- design process and going through those different times of gaining more material, making choices validation over and over again is that you you end up expanding the game space to be more inclusive of 
I don't know, of other things that are related to your topic or of right. other experiences that are allies to it that maybe you didn't know about in the first place? I think it speaks to the same idea we were saying before about what we choose or assume has to be included. I guess I've implicitly thought this before, but I've never really said it out loud. There are a lot of things that we cut out of a game, darlings that we kill, as we've said before, that we cut out of a game because we think this isn't the game for that, or because we think this is too frivolous a game for such a serious thing, mm -hmm. or we think this is too serious a game for such a frivolous thing, or whatever. And I think maybe too much of that is even itself momentum and habit driven, which is that we say... I'm making a serious game about repatriation. Therefore, even though I have a cool subsystem about what you wear at the dig site, about weather and temperature and stuff, right? That I cut it out because I think, well, that's going to be too, it's going to make light of it or because it's going to involve funny hats or whatever it is I decide. Right. Or that's just like, eh, that doesn't add that much. Who really cares at the end of the day, like what the weather is and what you have to wear? Right. But then... On the one hand, if that adds a note... Mm -hmm. Even if it's just kind of the fun high end of the melody or whatever, it's it's yeah. not part of the melody, it's not part of the bass, or whatever. It's a it's a little background. It's the clarinet doing its thing, and that's the additional notes. That could be enough to be robust enough that the game doesn't feel one note. I mean, yeah. you, and you may not know yet, right? And part of it, is, or it may lead you to the thing that is that adds this magic second element of the mashup or whatever. Mm -hmm. But there's so much stuff that I think that we probably don't include in games, and I think more often than that, we actually do it the other way around, which is that we don't include stuff that we think is maybe too big to wrestle with in a game of of quote unquote this scope. Yeah, I know I absolutely do the thing where I put elements into a setting that I think are substantive that I reflect in the mechanics, probably not enough to, to mm -hmm. what they deserve. I certainly do it in more classic RPGs and things, products that I've done for things like Vampire and D&D &D and stuff or for D20 stuff. Things that deserve to have systems to draw attention to them. But if you, if you have a game about family dynamics and the parental to child relationship is a couple of sentences and is not, has no game effect. Right. At the very least, have an answer as to why that is. Yeah. <laughs> It's all part of the, the trade-off, right? At some point, you have to limit the scope. Yeah. So you do have to, generally means you do have to cut material. Making the decision of what to cut, how much, maybe whether you blend two aspects instead of cutting one of them and keeping the other, all those things. I think making those decisions can generally benefit from kind of deciding like how, how much is the purpose of the game being reflected by the mechanics? Did I lose that thread at some point and I need to regain it? And by that, I mean, I need to pull some stuff out to expose it again. Mm -hmm. Or is every single thing in this game about X? So that's a little heavy handed. What can I pare back or change so that X emerges instead of being just directly in everyone's face from the word go? And similarly, I think that everything in this game says the same thing about X. Right. Which is something we've talked about before, how like if your mechanics are asking questions... If they're if you're able to give the same answer over and over and over again, that may be indicative of of you're not taking advantage of all the opportunities that your subject matter is affording you. There's a lot of stuff that we do, not just because games have genres, but because story games and RPGs in particular interact with a whole with game genres and narrative genres and world genres and fiction. I mean, all kinds of stuff that I think there's a lot that we tend to do by habit in which we assume that because we've already decided the game is X genre too early in the process, like it's, it's fine in inspiration and it's fine to have somebody at the end decide what shelf your game's going to go on. There's a point in the middle where we can, and I think often are benefited by shedding genre altogether, making the damn thing and then finding out what genre it is. Yeah. 
Yes. It can help with a starting place, but it can, and, and you'll arrive at a genre anyway, so don't worry about it. That if genre is like the shape that you set down, the, the pattern, if you will, that you set down onto the fabric to cut the shape of the shirt out, the t-shirt genre is always going to be a t-shirt. And so what that's doing is it's making, it's pre-making a lot of decisions for us. Mm-hmm. And so I think as soon as we have the ability to use but not overuse our genres or to, and we see this sometimes, this is one of the reasons I think why certain things that are like mashups get a lot of great mileage, not just out of their visibility, but out of their originality, their boldness and their their ability to do new things. Mm-hmm. There are a couple that come to mind immediately. You just played recently Bluebeard's Bride, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I haven't played it yet. So stop me. But the, okay. the notion is, for example, that we can end up with games like Bluebeard's Bride, which has some shorthand genre tags you could use to kind of get it across to somebody quickly to get to, to convince them kind of what kind of yeah. play experience they're going to get. It's a... a fairy tale inspired horror game. And if you know kind of the premise of the game and how it works, that's you're like, yeah, that kind of draws a circle around it. Mm-hmm. But it really doesn't convey the degree of impact that the game can actually have on you. <laughs> right. Or the depth of it. Yeah, it's a it's a, a game in progress, which I believe is going to be released later later in 2016, where you all play different aspects of the psyche of the singular Bluebeard's Bride character as she goes to Bluebeard's mansion or castle, whatever, after the wedding night. And then play goes through a series of rooms in the manor. And you kind of experience the dawning horror of what Bluebeard has done to his previous wives. It's, it's kind of a, uh, a set progression kind of thing that the content is is very GM driven. It's a very GM driven game. So it's not like you play and it's the same every time. It's a short form two to three hour game. You're playing a singular character instead of all having independent characters. There's kind of a one route to an end destination, like all of these things that are kind of parts of different genres and different play traditions. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're being combined with a what I think from my play experience, you know, is with a design agenda. It's designed by three women and it's a design agenda to present a female experience of powerlessness in a male dominated space Mm -hmm. that is very powerful in play the dial of how much you are receptive to having that experience is going to change player by player but the design of the game absolutely creates powerlessness at the table in a way that does not end participation in the game, right? Right. In a way that is productive for how you play. I'm pretty good friends with at least one of the designers and like, so I've talked about the game a lot with her, but without trying to speak for them as a player, I think the uh, agenda is clear. The purpose of the game is there, but they've been playtesting it for a long time. It's gone through a lot of design iterations and there's a lot of aspects of it that are, you know, that create different ways to answer that question, mm-hmm. which makes it re- replayable, makes it an experience that is worth replicating replicating over and over right right yeah in addition to the basic this is an important game because here's it's doing a thing that other games have not tried to address before in my experience it's a great example of something the genre touchstones mean that people can arrive within reach of it quickly by mm-hmm. you say fairy tale horror these kind of things we have in our world mansions and weddings and stuff so we have a certain right accessibility yeah but it's not beholden to a genre and it is a mashup not in the way that mashup can sometimes be I think oversimplified as a term but Mm -hmm. it's a mashup in the sense that it is putting together fairy tale and horror and RPG and both linear and non-linear narrative Mm -hmm. um, and all this and then blowing open ideas like and you're all playing parts of the same character and things that are obviously not inherited from any of those genres and it's just so it's just such a great kind of example to me of the alchemical mix of this stuff Mm -hmm. you can't just create a recipe to make these kinds of things that isn't it's not just you know take two genres put them together pick a 
character class for the player and go, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. It's not that kind of a thing. And so many games, I mean, I think also I was thinking about The Quiet Year earlier for, as a result of this question, which is a game that is loosely narrative. I mean, in the sense that it's not a story, it's not an RPG exactly. It's I don't really care what genre it falls into. It's a cool game. Uh, yeah. It's map drawing, um, has obviously some narrative because of the way time unfolds in it, um, has a lot of sense of space and more like I think a dramatic resonance than it has like a dramatic narrative arc to it or a specific arc to it or anything like that. But these games are accessible and I I'm feel comfortable calling both of them profound in the sense that, that they have massive effects on the players. Mm-hmm. They are not things that would benefit more by having pre-made decisions done for them by genre or right. by marketplace. Yeah, But I don't know as a player... Me knowing that the game has agenda, you know, X, Y, Z is not relevant to the fact that I'm going to have a great experience. Like it wasn't, it's not, that's not the first bullet point on the back of the cell text. Right. You know what I mean? Is this is a game that will make you have feelings about whatever. As with every design decision, you you kind of accept that by dialing up things that are counter to the landscape of other games and other products that you're entering Mm -hmm. by dialing up things that are different you are kind of necessarily cutting down whether it's the shelf appeal or the pitch appeal or the nature of the game itself like me or just the play experience you're going to end up trading off on the number of people who will want to play your game and then will have that connection to your game there's a school of thought that can be very helpful where it's like when you're designing your game like design it for one person I know that Will is going to love the uh, Goblin Archaeology game so i'm going to design it for will and if other people like it that's great and more often than not having a that specific audience in mind in the sense of of will means that the game will be strong enough that other people people who are like will will probably also like it and then it has and then you're you're creating a strong thing and it's easier to get into a strong thing than Mm -hmm. into kind of like a eh thing right the the fears i've always said about it is that when you dial up specificity when you get a very specific game you're shrinking the audience size yeah. to the most emphatic lovers of that thing that you dialed the specificity up for mm-hmm. but like you said before if you make a game about anything if you make the game about what will likes make a game just for me it will naturally if made well be about more than just what i like because it will have been about more than one thing which means that everybody who likes that other thing and Mm -hmm. that third thing and that fourth thing that the game is about also now have a chance to like it and because it's good at it because you dialed up the specificity and didn't try to remake the world we all have a chance to be emphatic about it that idea that if you make a game for people who love this thing so that in other words in order to get them to love it and to see that they love it just to recognize that it's a thing they already like you have to make it well or also going to dismiss it as that's not a very good example of x that's not a very good example of insomniac fighter pilots their love and enthusiasm will be magnetic for others anyway right so that even if you make a game for one person if you do a good job the odds are stronger that the people adjacent to the person you made it to are going to show up The trade-off between being like, this is the game I want to make, this is my experience, this is the field that I want to address. Yeah. These are these are the people I'm talking to. Yeah. Making that game is probably going to be done a disservice by being like, oh, and let me tack on exactly. the rest of the sexual identity spectrum <laughs> right. that I don't actually know that much about and that I don't right. feel that I'm empowered to speak for. But in some abstract sense, because this is about non-heteronormative interactions, then I have to include the entire right. gender spectrum. And it's like, or maybe you can make a really good game about 
your experience or whatever experience you want to express about bisexuality. And part of that, sometimes it's going to be an indicator just to say, well, then you're not talking enough about yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Like focus on what you, that you are confident and to say, Mm -hmm. and that you have a lot of strong stuff to say about your experiences. And that's another great way to make sure that we have enough, not even enough. I don't know if there's such a thing that we have a lot of games from and about diverse experiences is to have as many designers as possible designing from their position, as opposed to picking four white guys and saying, you guys are in charge of designing games from every perspective, which is essentially what we had for a long, long time. Yeah, which I think <laughs> we continue to strive to, speaking as a white guy, yeah. <laughs> something that we strive to continue to get away from, having all of our games be by white guys. I'm pretty comfortable saying that. No, I, I certainly am. And the, But in, in the same way that it's ridiculous to expect all of us white guys to represent everybody, Right. the best way to do this is to give everybody an opportunity to represent themselves. Mm-hmm. That also means that if you are a bisexual uh, African-American woman, then you don't owe it to me to put white guys in your game. <laughs> if your game's not about that, if it's not right. about the experience that includes me, you're not obligated to include me. Right. That doesn't necessarily go both directions because we don't yet have parity in inclusion <laughs> in representation. Yes. But, but if, for example, that is the perspective of somebody who is not adequately represented in the hobby already, in games mm-hmm. already, I feel like that is a blanket statement and because there isn't time for me to make much other than blanket statements. What I should also be clear about is that I do not believe that everything that is a solid reason for doing a thing is a solid reason for doing the other thing. I should not necessarily make a game about the politics of Native American reservations in New Mexico, but that's not a reason for somebody else not to make that game, right? (laughs) Right? The fact that the game is not represented might be a reason for you to make that game and not for me to make that game. When in doubt, make your game. Don't try to make somebody else's game. I think because it makes it a little easier to talk about, talking about a something like gender or violence or something like that is mm-hmm. top of our tongues. But like the question gets to, these things can be like, how do I run a game for young people? Right. Right. Or how do I make a game that is inclusive of everyone's ability to play, whether they have access to technology or have access to the book or have yeah. the ability to have dice? There's all these different realms that you can address. Mm -hmm. as a designer that are not necessarily the fictional content of the game. They can be about accessibility. They can be about distribution. Like, how do I design a game that people don't have to buy online and can still play? What if I design a game that people play in line while waiting to do something else? That's something that people play with all the time. Right. I mean, and and you can be very specific. And sometimes specific is less inclusive. And I say this not in a way in terms of capital I inclusive. But for example, this is a game that does not require sight. Right. You don't have to read to play this game. You don't have to read a die. You don't have to see it all to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's a skill set I don't have in terms of of designing for that every need, right? I haven't practiced every possible form of inclusion. But uh, I might end up creating a game in which hearing is required. And Mm -hmm. now suddenly I have excluded one thing by including another. And that's not necessarily that like that that's mandatory. It's not a necessary thing. But anytime we winnow, anytime we refine like that, and, and I think that's fine because it's there aren't enough games that don't require sight. There aren't enough games like uh, the colorblind issue in video games is, oh, yeah. is finally in the head of designers in a way that it wasn't when I was a kid. But I knew friends who were colorblind and had trouble with video games because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, now Destiny and so forth have colorblind settings in their menus that you can just turn them on and all the menus now you know interact more favorably for a wider array of color sightedness. But that's a thing where, where inclusion comes not at a cost of something else. But, but I just want to say that it's that it's okay is that when you're designing a game for children, if the thing is, yeah, that's never going to work for anybody over the age of 14, that's fine. Right. Right. It's not necessarily that every player needs to have every game. It's that every player needs to be able to have games to play. Right. All of this talk about audience and one's relationship to the idea, the core notion of the of the design and whether or not you have the right to make it and, and who you're making it for carries through into the notion of the audience that's 
that you're hoping will play it at the end and right. their needs and their abilities and their like schedules I and mean, mm. everything, right? So like you're saying I'm making a game that has to be playable in a math class. So it has to right. be half an hour and good for people who are up yeah. to 15 years old. We've been we've been talking a lot about content, but the heart of this question actually, I think, is asking about things that aren't content. I'd want to say form factor because that, that's limiting, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, kind of the context, right? Like yeah. is the purpose of your game to be played, as you say, in math class or at a library on a rotating game day where you, right. you're not going to have the same people every time. Yeah, or to introduce new players or to broaden the experience of current players in a way that they can bring back to their own other game or, you know, there's all these other kind of non-content specific purposes that you can have. I've been thinking about at what stage when I start making decisions and sticking to them about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Because I would think about it early, but I don't hold myself to the decisions I make early until later in the design. Well, you know what I mean? It depends, right? Because if you start from the place of, I'm going to make a game that can be played in an hour in a math class, yeah, then that's what you need to cast back and reflect the rest of your design right. upon, right? As opposed to, this is the Insomniac Fighter Pilot game. That's the content we're excited about. Mm-hmm. And then at some point be like, so is this like a one-shot thing or is this like a linked scenario thing or is this a campaign game? That's a variable Mm -hmm. that we're going to cast back against like what makes sense for Insomniac Fighter Pilots. Right. Well, if you're like, I'm making the one hour math class game. Okay, so I need to have some like math. That that right? part is not moving. That yeah, that part part's fixed. fixed. Yeah. So you're like, oh, so far it's all um, descriptive words and comparing two values, but this is for math class. So where do I get some math into it? Yeah, that's a great example of realizing that you've made a perfectly good game for something else. Right. And that that's how I was getting slipped up on this is the idea that holding true to your purpose, even though you might come up with great ideas that belong in a different box. (laughs) So this is why we have notebooks. So you keep your notebook and you write that stuff down that you go, oh, I accidentally made a great game for history class. Yeah. But everything I learned about making that game playable in 35 minutes is still going to potentially help me Mm -hmm. in the math class game. Right. So it all goes into the notebook. I think in in reality, unless you have a very pedagogical mm-hmm. project, if it is, you know, I'm a teacher and I'm I'm going to write a game that I can teach in my class, or nobody knows about this facet of history, so I'm going to make a game that teaches people the basics of this history, or that kind of thing, where there's where the the drive of the project is that pedagogy. You know, it's one of those things that you like make a decision and then you play a little bit and then you're like, oh, that wasn't the right decision. Like it goes from being like, oh, it turns out this actually would be a great group game because everyone can participate in this phase of the game maybe you discover that down the road and right. then you start going like oh so maybe this is good for some kind of like classroom or auditorium setting i think when you see those strict like this game is for this thing a lot of contests create those kind of games because yep. the constraints the creative constraints of the contest they're external they're very stay, functional they're stay fixed too yeah you can't change the contest or right. you're breaking the contest right so so like uh witness the murder of your father and be ashamed young prince that came from a contest and one of the constraints was there's no no um, writing like you can't write like there's no like sheets and pencils and stuff a game that that doesn't involve any uh, physical ability to write so that game uses tokens and is verbal and also i don't remember if the game constraint was can be played in an hour or if i decided that during the early process i think that was also a game constraint or maybe it was like can be finished in an hour but could be longer or something and it's like nope it's going to be an hour so for that the design process then is is reflecting back on design in an hour no pencils i did this twice with the same game which is that odyssey started as a game chef 
submission that was never submitted to Game Chef because it wasn't good enough within the deadline, but was uh, about journeys, deserts, and so forth. Um, and so it had a whole mechanic where you trail six-sided dice together, link mm-hmm. six-sided dice together. In designing that, I discovered a thing that is in Odyssey, which is which I then rebuilt for a game that teaches character creation and change for creative writers. That's the game that I play with the kids at Shared Worlds. And so I had things like it has to be fast enough that if you have six players, they don't get bored. Mm-hmm. A little bit communal, a little bit collective, that kind of thing. And I just made the decision that it will use no more than two six-sided dice by mandate. It could use more. You Sometimes could, you just have give, more presence. But give yeah. yourself a limit, right? Give You're yourself like, these little uses challenges. Uses 2d6, yeah. that's it. You and in this something. case, that was literally based on things like I want to take one brick of six-siders yeah. with me to South Carolina. And I don't want to have to take six dice per player when I've got 30 players or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it was a game that I had to be able to be played in little groups and with, also within, in a big room, that kind of stuff. And what I realized about a year ago was that while Odyssey is, I think, a lot of fun to play, when I took out some of the mandates that I had put on it, the sequel to it, which God knows when that'll happen, but the sequel to it is better at fulfilling the second set of pedagogical mandates mm. or will be and it's what I'll be playtesting this summer at Shared Worlds but is being built to that same ver- that very same notion a little bit educational a little bit pedagogical a little bit based on time and format mm. and that just by having fewer of those mandates and making them completely immobile mm. I cannot change these things right can be a profound design boon in the same way that it can be a, you know I mean it's, it's a creative restraint yeah so the heart of this question whether the purpose is a pedagogical direction that you want to go, whether it's a certain area of content that you want to express, whether it's a certain genre that you want to explore or subvert or what have you, how does that end up influencing the actual design process? To me, it creates, when we talk about reflecting on your inspiration, it creates a, uh, whether it's a bullet point list or or a checklist or a more vague set of principles that you are holding to or you know, however specific or however uh, literal it is, mm-hmm. it gives you something solid to make those design decisions and something to specifically in playtesting, I think, because it's a very hard line of, all right, this is for four people for two hours. I played with four people and it only took 45 minutes. Right. So I need to change something to achieve that purpose, especially with things like audience and um, social footprint and time and stuff like that. It gives you some really easy to see, easy to parse thresholds for is my design successful or not in achieving the purpose that I have. Right. I was going to say metrics. The idea that it gives you the the tape measure that you can hold out and say, well, it's supposed to be 30 square centimeters of fun and it, it's at 25. Mm-hmm. So I got to add five more square right. centimeters of fun. And if that's a fixed thing that you gives you something strong to reflect against, right? a good polished surface to reflect against to say whether or not, yeah, that, that your, the design is fulfilling its purpose in addition to or separate how that may or may not align directly with vision. Um, because mm-hmm. my vision might be that the game also be set in ancient Egypt, but that's not its purpose. So that is a second tier thing. And the, right. the metaphor I was thinking about for this is if the priority list is a target, a bullseye, I want to not run this too far into the ground, but is the idea that the centermost target, that's your number one priority. And a dart can't hit every part of the target, right? <laughs> right? But you want to hit the bullseye and you get four throws. And if you can maybe hit all four rings, great. Mm-hmm. But you have to hit that bullseye because that's where you put the primary purpose of the game. Yeah. The, and so that priority list is really important, I think. 
the idea of prioritizing, yeah. I think, is key here and is a word that I was searching for earlier and wasn't wasn't finding. The, the finite number of darts is a metaphor that helps me when mm-hmm. I realize that I only have four darts, let's say, in any game. Right. And I, you could say, well, I'm the designer. I can add a fifth dart. Don't do that. Don't do too many things. <laughs> yeah. Well, within, within that hazy cloud of yeah. inspiration, right, yeah. prioritizing which elements are the ones that enable you to make the uh, trade-offs yeah. in your design. Yeah. That's what including your purpose in there. And sometimes you discover the purpose as you go, right? Like you can be very inspired by content. And mm-hmm. then as you're playing, be like, you know, this is actually giving me the opportunity to really nail this three session and out version of this game or whatever, right? Yep. And then you can be like, all right, well, what do I have to adjust to optimize for three sessions of any number of players? Anyone can play any character as long as there's one person there to maintain versus... Like, this is a campaign game that goes on forever and ever. And in the same way that your notebook can hold content stuff for a million different things, mm-hmm. I have a tendency to think about purpose this way, but a page or a couple of pages in your notebook that is just for purposes, that are not immediately assigned to games, but you go, can I make a game mm. that plays great in one session? You, know, you get to decide sometimes that we have the luxury when we're making games for ourselves of being able to decide what purposes come into play. But when you're making them for clients, they will give you purposes. Sure, yeah, yeah. But you may, for example, turn to the purpose pages in your notebook and say, is this game better if I do prioritize one of these purposes? Mm-hmm. And I think very often we think of purposes as they emerge from content or as they emerge from form factor or as they emerge from audience. And that's great. That's that's one of the ways that we absorb or inherit ideas from previous iterations is by assuming that purpose is always married to content in a certain way. Right? Can there be a very serious game about dressing avatars? Yes, absolutely. But games that are about the part of the game which you dress your avatar is usually not that serious or important in this game. It's co- We consider it cosmetic. Well, it could be super vital if it's about survival in the desert or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Or survival in, in the mountains, anywhere. Just realizing that we've absorbed or inherited at the same time this purpose and this content mm-hmm. and being able to separate them and say, what if I get rid of this content and put in something that makes it mm-hmm. the same purpose and makes it apt for my math class or yeah. apt for my 11-year-olds or whatever it is. And I think similarly, if you're having trouble moving the design along, perhaps just picking something, mm-hmm. right? Like, what if it's a one-shot game? Yeah. What if it's for my friend Sarah? Mm-hmm. What if it's to get people who are really excited about this new movie to play? Even if it's arbitrary or semi-arbitrary, right? Like it's an idea that maybe you've had rattling around and you haven't really pulled together with anything. That can be super helpful to pick up a purpose and, and, and wear it for a little while, right? <laughs> yeah. And and discover yeah. how that limits you and what other opportunities that affords you. And maybe you go, all right, you know what? This isn't a good one session game, but because I tried to make it a one session game, I learned this, this, and this, and now I can go back, right? Uh, you know, and reprioritize my inspirations. Or because I got the game down to working in one session, now suddenly I understand what is and isn't one session dependent. Mm-hmm. And now I have the ability to make a three session version of it work when before that was just too big for me to, to get my head around or whatever it is. That's certainly one that works for me. Yeah. And in that same way, I think it means that you can find purposes, new purposes to, to, to try out and try on is thinking about how this purpose fits somebody else or doesn't fit mm-hmm. somebody else can help you create and aim a game, if you will, in a way that is more likely to speak to, serve or fulfill an audience that does not yet have enough games reaching them. I absolutely agree. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider supporting us at Patreon so that we can continue to bring these episodes to you. My Patreon is at patreon.com slash ndpaoletta. My Patreon is at patreon.com slash wordwill. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a rating or review on your pod listening apparatus of choice. 
What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just 